Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open to Exodus chapter 20 this evening. Exodus chapter 20. Our text for the evening is simply verse 3. However, we're going to read the entirety of the passage beginning in verse 1 and going all the way uh, all the way through verse 17 this evening. Exodus chapter 20 will be focused on verse 3, but we'll read 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this evening, Father, we pray that you will reveal its truth to us. Lord, speak through your servant, for if these are not your words, then they are meaningless and empty. Your words are the words of truth. They contain the words of life. Father, reveal them to us tonight. Be with us, we pray, for we pray it in the name of Christ, our God and our Savior. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you live not in Jacksonville in the 21st century, but in medieval Europe in the 11th century. And imagine that you're not a citizen of the United States of America, but a baron under your local lord. And not only are you a baron, but you have just inherited the land, and you've taken the place of the lord over it, and it is now time for you to swear your fealty or to swear your allegiance to your king. Bear with me for a moment. Now imagine that you're coming before the king, ready to swear your undying loyalty only for him to inform you that he was fine with you pledging your allegiance to any king that you wanted to, or even serving any other king that you desire to serve. Such a thought is simply unimaginable, or perhaps I should say it's only imaginable. 
There's simply no way this could or would ever happen in real life, and it certainly didn't happen in history. Well, if that is true, how much more insane would it be then to think that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would allow you to swear your loyalty to some lesser created thing? Such is the substance of the first commandment. You see, this commandment is concerned first and foremost with who we worship. It's concerned with who we worship. Well, as we examine this commandment tonight, this first of the ten, there are three things that I want us to see, three basic truths regarding this first commandment. First, I want us to see tonight the requirement of the commandment. Secondly, I want us to see the reason for the commandment. And then thirdly, I want us to see the extent of the commandment. Three things, three truths, the requirements of the commandment, the reason for the commandment, and the extent of the commandment. Well, first of all, we come to the requirement of this commandment, of this great commandment as we know it. We know, simply put, from this commandment and where elsewhere in Scripture that there are righteous requirements of this commandment, and they are, like every other commandment, simple for us to, to grasp a hold of, and yet unattainable. You see, it's, it's simple. This commandment, there's not a lot to it. You shall have no other gods before me. There's not a long text explaining all the ins and outs and what, what this means for us. It's a, a very simple statement, a very simple command, and yet we know from the rest of Scripture that in order to follow this, we must be perfect. We must be sinless. We must perfectly keep God's law. Always, in everything that we do, in everything that we say, in every thought that we have. And so this commandment is simple, and yet it is unobtainable for us. We well know that there is an outward keeping of the law as well as an inward keeping of the law. Christ makes that clear to us. That it's the matters of the heart that matter. It's not just that we, we outwardly keep all of these commandments, we outwardly keep all of these laws, but it is our heart, the desires of our heart that matter. David, in Psalm 51, as he is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba, asks God to create in him a clean heart. And he confesses that the Lord doesn't desire sacrifices, but a broken and contrite heart. That the Lord will not despise. David understands that the keeping of God's law, David understands that true repentance come from the heart, from the inward man. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 12 that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. This commandment, like all the others, is first and foremost considered with our hearts. The desires of our hearts, the things that we think, the things that we feel, the things that we believe. And only secondarily is it concerned with our outward actions, in so much as those actions are a reflection of our inward hearts. The authors of the Shorter Catechism summarize this commandment well as they draw attention to this twofold keeping of the law, both the outward and the inward keeping of the law. Listen to what it is that they write. The first commandment requires us to know and to acknowledge God, to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. You see, they hit on both of these things. Notice first that we are to know and to acknowledge God as God and as our 
God. We must know and acknowledge. This is the head knowledge, the the interior knowledge, knowledge of the heart. That's why there's both there. It's not merely enough to know and to, to say that it is true that God is God. But we must, uh, or it's not merely enough to know that God is God. We must acknowledge it in our hearts. There is a, a, a mental acquiescence here that we know the truth and we acknowledge it as the truth. That we know and assent to God as he is God. That we know and acknowledge that he exists, has always existed. That we know and that we assent to his role as our creator and as our king. That we know and assent to his work of redemption, his works of providence. There's a mental knowledge that goes on here, a heart knowledge that we we must have in ourselves. Knowing who God is and what God has done. But there's also the outward practice of it. Notice that we must not only know and acknowledge it according to the Westminster Divines, but that we must also worship and glorify God accordingly. It's not merely enough to know these things, to say these things out loud. We must practice them. We must worship and glorify God. Our head and our mouth are meaningless. They are empty if they don't bring with them a heart of change. If our actions don't reflect the things that we confess, then the things that we confess are lies. You see, we must keep this law both inwardly and outwardly. We must worship God communally, outwardly, together as we gather and worship on the Sabbath day. We must glorify God individually in every single part of our lives, day in and day out, as we go to work, as we eat at restaurants, as we come home and spend time with our families, as we watch movies, as we play games, as we we go about our daily lives, all of that ought to be for the glory of God. We know and acknowledge the truth of who God is, the truth of what God has done, and then our lives have to reflect it. Corporately, as we come and we worship on the Sabbath day, and then individually, as we glorify God in our daily lives. This commandment requires all of these things. We must love God as our God. We must love him as our Father. We saw this even last week as we looked at the preface to the Ten Commandments. There is both the outward and the inward knowledge, the outward and the inward practice of the heart. This is the requirement of the commandment. It's not so simple as to, so long as you never go to some foreign temple and bow down before a stone idol, you're good to go. Your head, your heart, every part of who you are must keep this commandment. The application of this is simple. True religion is a religion of the head and of the heart. When we think of this commandment, when we think of these requirements, the outward and the inward, I think it's easy for us to go to major extremes and to then condemn those extremes and kind of just say, all right, we've done our due diligence and let's move on. It's easy to look at someone who is perhaps on the side of a legalist, They have the head knowledge. They they know what God requires. They know the commands, but they don't follow them with their heart. Their desire is not for God. Their love is not for his law. They don't rest in the finished work of Christ. They're concerned with uh, uh, the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. 
They want to, to keep every single aspect of it and, and walk, follow every single rule perfectly into a T, but for the sake of following the rules, not because they love God. On the flip side, we have the antinomian, those who love or would profess to love Christ but have no desire to outwardly acknowledge his law, to, to follow it, uh, or uh, yeah, to follow his law as they ought to do. These extremes are easy for us to look at and to condemn, but most of the time they are extremes. What's a much more likely example, though, a much closer example, is a right balance of these things. Do we have a right balance, a, a right balance of head and heart, a right balance of orthodoxy and orthopraxy? There are those, and perhaps you're one of these people and, and grew up in traditions that, that emphasize this, that just want to love Jesus. You want to just read your Bible. You want to just pray. Have a personal relationship with Christ. You're not overly concerned with theology. You're not overly concerned with reading books about God written by other men. You're very content to simply read your Bible and pray and love Jesus, and that's it. You have a strong heart, but a weak head. There's a danger in this. You see, theology helps us to prevent idolatry. Knowing things that are true about God, studying theology, studying God's character, His attributes as He has revealed them in His Word, understanding the, the, the philosophical as well as the theological implications of those attributes helps us to avoid idolatry. It prevents us from giving the name Jesus to a God of our own making. This is a danger that must be avoided. We should read, we should study, we should know who God is. Not God as we want him to be, but God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. This requires study not just of our Bibles, though certainly that is the most important, But it also requires in-depth study by men who have spent their lives, devoted their lives to the study of God's word. Or perhaps on the flip side, and perhaps this is a lot closer for many of you, you're someone who knows a whole lot. You know a lot of theology, but you struggle to have the heart behind it. You're a person who loves reading theology, but you struggle to love your neighbor. Perhaps you're someone who can tell everyone around you the difference between being a superlapsarian traditionist Calvinist, but you struggle to talk about your sin, and you struggle to talk about your need of Christ. You feel awkward in talking about your Christian experience. You're very happy in the theological conversations, talking about the things that you like talking about, but you're very reluctant to share about what it is that Christ is doing in your life, where you need prayer, and how you need to grow in your relationship with Him. Well, this is equally dangerous and equally idolatrous. Instead of a Jesus who loves everyone and wants to only talk of grace, your tendency is to make God in your own way, cold, calculated, empty. And it's only when we come to a balance of these two a balance of the head and the heart that we can truly begin to see and to understand Christ's commands here in these Ten Commandments. We're always going to lean on one side or another. You're always going to have a tendency to one of these sides or another to be more uh, 
heady in your knowledge of Christ or to be more informed by your heart, your emotion, your feelings. We must be aware of our tendencies that we might not fall into idolatry. You must be aware of which way you tend to go so that you can come back and and stay in the middle. That you can have a balance of your head and your heart. That you can have a, a balance of knowledge for God and love for God. A knowledge of His Word and a love for His people. We must have this balance or we will fall into idolatry. Christ is the perfect example of this. He perfectly embodies both. He is the one who flips the tables in the temple, flips the tables of the money changers, and he is the one who weeps with Mary. He has both perfectly, perfectly balanced as they ought to be. This is the requirement of the law, that we keep it not just outwardly, but inwardly, that we not just keep it with our head, that we not merely acknowledge it, but that we know it and love it with our hearts. This is what the law requires, and certainly we cannot keep it as we ought. Secondly, this evening, we're going to see the reason for the law. There's but one simple reason for this law. And it's the same reason as for all the laws, the same reason that we learned from the preface last week. The reason why this law exists is that God is God. The reason why this law exists is that God is God. It's as simple as that, and yet it In those words, this commandment demonstrates the depth and the breadth of who God is. It's here that theology comes into play. God is God means something. Us saying that God is God is not an empty statement. It's not a a meaningless statement. It's not a circular statement. It has weight to it. When we say that God is God, we are confessing that the God of the universe is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's independent. That all of the attributes that are said of him in his word, all the things that he attributes to himself are true of who he is. That he is, by definition of being God, the greatest being of all beings. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all gods. There is no one and nothing that can compare with him. And as such... He is also deserving of the praise and the glory that is befitting that greatest being. The reason for this commandment, the reason why you are not to have idols, why you are not to put other gods before the one true and living God is that he is the only one deserving of that praise and that honor. There is nothing else, no one else that can deserve or merit such praise and such honor. As the greatest being amongst all beings, as the greatest of all things, all people, there can be none greater for us to worship. And therefore, our worship must be given to God alone. Now that, that reasoning is before we even begin to delve into the discussing how God is our creator and our redeemer. The fact that he is God means he is deserving of our praise. But then even beyond that, as we delve into the pages of Scripture, as we see the beauty of God's plan of redemption unfold, as we see him as our creator and our sustainer, the one who provides for us, there all of a sudden come flooding to the forefront all these reasons why we ought to praise God. We must praise him because of who he is. 
The fact that he is our God, the fact that he is our creator, makes him worthy of it. Now, I want to be careful here at risk of getting ahead of ourselves, getting into next week. But I think it's worth noting here for a moment that because God is the only one who is worthy of this praise, it means he cannot share and will not share his glory with another person. Because he is God, because he is the only one in the universe deserving of praise and honor and glory and majesty, he cannot and will not share that glory with another person. He will not share it with a created object, with a created being. He will not share it with an inanimate, an inanimate object. He alone is deserving and worthy of praise and honor. The reason that we cannot put any other God before our God is simple. Jesus gives us the perfect example of this, and that is simply put that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money. We can't have a foot in both camps, as it were, because as Jesus teaches us, we will either love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. We must be all in. God cannot and will not share his glory because if he, he did, we would end up following after the idol and not him. This commandment exists for our benefit, that we don't put anything on par with God, that we look to him and him alone because he is deserving of our praise and our worship. We must, as Joshua did, say with him, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. This is what this commandment calls us to do. This is what this commandment calls the people of God to do. Choose who it is you will serve. The Lord's not going to share his glory with another. There is no other that is deserving of such glory, such praise, such honor. It is only the living and the true God. We cannot, as Israel did in so many times and in so many ways, go on Limping between two opinions. Those are the words of Elijah as he condemns them on Mount Carmel. That they, they go back and forth. One day they want to serve Baal. The other day they want to serve Yahweh. And it's, it's just according to their whims. What they need. What they feel like they want. Whichever God will give them the most stuff. The most things. That's the God that they're going to serve. That is not what God permits his people to do. You cannot one day serve money and the next day serve Yahweh. Because it's better to serve Yahweh. You need, you need something that money can't give you. We must serve the Lord and the Lord alone. We cannot hedge our bets. This is what Israel did so often in the wilderness. They wanted to go on uh, keeping the Egyptian gods in case they needed them. And Yahweh in case they needed him. When they get to Canaan, it's the same thing. It's not that they ever stop worshiping Yahweh. All the high places that they're condemned for throughout the Old Testament. Those are high places to Yahweh. It's that they also worship the gods of the Canaanites because those gods were the gods of Canaan. And so they wanted them to provide the crops and the food and the rain and, and, and the things of those land. They were hedging their bets, making sure they had all their bases covered. God won't allow that to be the case. We must serve the Lord alone for he alone is worthy. Not only is God alone worthy, but the worship of him alone is what's best for us. What good is it for us to worship gods of wood and stone as 
What use is that to us? To worship them is an absurdity. We made them with our hands. If you were to go outside and take a stick out of the woods and and carve a little God, what good does that God do you? You made it. You are greater than it is. It is of great benefit to the people of God to worship Him and Him alone. Similarly, of what use is money or a job or a political figure? Ultimately, they are all created things, given things. They are given and taken according to the will of God. Why are we relying on them and not the one who gives them? There is great benefit to us in worshiping God and God alone. First of all, he is deserving of it. That that should be reason enough. But then we get the benefit of worshiping the only living and true God. The one who can give us all of our needs. The one who can protect and provide for us. The one who redeems us. There's great benefit for us in worshiping God alone. He alone is deserving of your worship. And this is the reason for this law. Third and finally tonight. I want us to briefly look at the extent of this law. This goes hand in hand with these previous two, both the requirement and the reason for the law. And it's a little more of a practical point, a summary point of what we've been talking to up until now. And there's, there's two things I want to draw your attention to here. Two things that are true uh, of this extent of the law. First, the law extends to every part of your life. It extends to every part of your life. The head and the heart must both be involved in your obedience to God's word in this commandment. It must be, this law must be a part of both your physical life and your spiritual life. It extends to every moment, every encounter, every experience that you have. It informs all of those things. It's not just that we worship God, the only true God, on Sundays, and perhaps if we want to be extra spiritual on Wednesdays as well. That's not what we're doing. It's not just on those days when we come and we worship. It's that every aspect, every moment of our lives is spent worshiping the living and the true God. This means that nothing, no object, no person, no place, no thing, can come before or be placed in priority over God. We can't place anything in priority over God. This has implications in every part of our life, does it not? Consider how this uh, impacts your work. You can't cut corners to save your own time, to save your own energy, your own effort. You can't cut corners for your own pleasure. You ought not steal of company time, company money, Do things for yourself. Why? Because ultimately you're doing things for the glory of God. It has implications in your economics. Giving to God must come first. Your tithe comes first. It comes before any other commodity, any other pleasure, anything you're buying for yourself, for your own pleasure. That's not to say that that buying things that we enjoy, buying things that we want is a bad thing. But our giving to God must come first. It impacts the way we think about our money, the way we we budget month to month. It impacts our interactions. 
We must not be friends first and Christians second. We don't say that sin is okay for the sake of our own feelings of of awkwardness when we're around people who are rebelling against God. We must be Christians first. We must serve God first. The gospel comes first. We don't compromise on issues of sin, not with friends, not with family. Those are difficult things. But there are things that we are called to in this commandment. We don't place anything else above God and above what he has said. It impacts every part of our life. And the fact that this extends to every part of our life means, secondly here, uh, or it draws to our attention the reason why this is the first of the Ten Commandments. The reason why this is the first of the Ten Commandments is uh, because it is the most significant. The fact that it extends to every part of our life is evidence of its significance. Everything that we do falls under one of two categories. Either we are following God or we are following or or we are not following God. We are either serving the Lord or we are not serving the Lord. There is no in-between. There is no neutral spot. It is one or the other. Everything is either for God or it is against God. And at the end of the day, what this means, practically speaking, is that every sin that we commit is first and foremost a violation of this first commandment. Every sin that you commit in your life, day in and day out, is first and foremost a violation of this commandment. Christ makes this clear on the cross when he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Well, what is it that they don't know that they're doing? They clearly know that they're, they're crucifying Christ. They clearly know that they're, they're killing him. They clearly know that, that they are, are, are hating him. What is it that they don't realize? That they have first and foremost rebelled against Almighty God. Everything that you do, every sin that you commit, is a rebellion against God. It is a placing yourself above God, above his word, above his law. You're saying his law, his word doesn't matter as much as your desire. It doesn't matter as much as what your flesh wants. You're saying you are more important. Your desire is more important than the king of heaven who has called you to obedience. And so every sin that we commit breaks this law. This is why it's the first commandment. Because in breaking all the other nine, we break this one too. We cannot be neutral on this. We cannot serve two masters. We serve God or we serve an idol. Here the Lord calls his people to have no other gods before him. They can have no other God. For he is the one, the true, the living God. Well, certainly we can't keep this. But remember, as we talked about last week, what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law is not to save us. It wasn't to save Israel. It wasn't to give them a list of commands that so long as they followed them, they would earn their salvation. Rather, this law was given both for Israel and for you to show you your need of Christ. To remind you that you need his blood. That you need his sacrifice. 
Because it is only through Christ, as He went to the cross, as He took your sin upon Himself, your breaking of these commandments, your breaking of this commandment upon Himself, it is only as He did that and simultaneously imputed to you His righteousness, His perfect keeping of this commandment, His perfect keeping of this law, it is only in that work that you have life and that you have hope. And so this commandment tonight, even as we just scratch the surface on the depths of it, what it requires of us, what it calls us to do, we are reminded that we cannot possibly keep it and that we need a great Savior. Look to Christ. Look to Him alone, for He alone is the one true living God. He alone can save He is your creator and your redeemer, and he is the one who is worthy of your praise. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, you are the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, the God above all gods. You alone are worthy of our praise and our honor. And Lord, even as we reflect on these words tonight, we know that we have not kept your law as we ought. Even as we confess every single Sunday morning, we know that we do not keep your law, that we do not honor you as God and as God alone. Father, forgive us, we pray, but then also build up in us a love for your law and a desire to keep it, a desire to serve you, not that we might merit your favor, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and taking our sin upon himself and giving to us his righteousness. For it is in Christ and Him alone that we have hope and we have salvation. O Lord, let our cry, let our plea only ever be Christ. Father, let us be balanced in our thinking of the law, balanced as Christ was balanced. Let us love as well as know your truth. Father, let us seek you in all of these things. May we take them to heart. And may we act on them this week and for the rest of our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.